0: Hey everyone, Slakuya here. And as I've mentioned in a previous episode and multiple times before, I've actually launched a book club in partnership with the audiobook retailer Chirp Books. E- essentially, the way that this is going to work is that each month I'm going to choose a new history book that covers a very fascinating but niche topic, like something that I really like but oftentimes can be very specific. But, you know, that, that that's what it is that I like. What's then going to happen is that Chirp is going to deeply discount that book for you all. We'll be able to listen along to it together, and at the end of the month, I'm going to have this very in-depth special episode on the podcast that is dedicated to it. And so for the first book, I've chosen something called a history in the world or rather a history of the world in six glasses. And what this thing does is it tells the story of humanity that goes all the way from the Stone Age through the 21st century that looks at six different drinks. Like we got beer, you got wine, spirits, coffee, tea and cola, things that, you know, we kind of take for granted in our modern day and age, but were huge, massive things that changed humanity. Now, normally, this audiobook costs around $18, but for a limited time on Chirp, it's only $2.99. So if you want to support the channel, please go to chirpbooks.com slash history to follow my club and get my first pick. Make sure you click follow so you're always in the loop on new book picks and club discussions. This is something that I even plan on hosting discussions on the book in Discord. Right, Gabby?
1: Yep. In addition, if you really don't want to, you didn't get the link, you can just click the description The link in the description. You'll have it in there for you guys.
0: Thank you very much for listening, my hoes, and I do hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. Stakuyi here.
1: And I'm Gabby.
0: And welcome back to the podcast, my hoes. Welcome to the first ever, like, actually sponsored podcast. Like, it, it's, it's actually a fairly exciting moment, right, Gabby?
1: I think it is, yeah.
0: Okay, so this is something that I've been wanting to do for a while. And when you hear things like they're sponsored on different podcasts or shows or other things like that, it, it always bothered me when you have something that does not fit the bill at all. Don't get me wrong. The Japanese do it great when it comes to like commercials where it's something completely unrelated, but it's funny and entertaining. But when you see like insert some random celebrity here that is holding up a makeup product or something that they very clearly don't use or have anything to do with it, that is just kind of annoying and bothersome for me. But the first sponsor to reach out to us was an audiobook service called Chirp, and it's Audiobooks, And I'm like, yes, yes, finally, something that while I'm driving or while I'm like moving around or, you know, having to do my general writing or other things and everything else that's dedicated to this podcast or, you know, annoying my wife in the car, we can listen to someone else talk besides me. <laughs> and I'm sure you probably agree with that. Right, Gabby?
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Plus, I think a lot of people constantly ask, how do you know that? Why do you know that? Who would even know oh, that?" all the time? because he's always reading some random books. So he's just gonna pick books with information that would be fun, I guess, party, like, conversation starters.
0: Oh, and this one is probably better for that than anything else, because this one is, and I know I've mentioned it before here, the history of the world in six glasses. So, I mean, if you want something party themed, we're talking about the history of alcohol. Well, I mean, part of it is history of alcohol. The other is like the caffeinated drinks, you know, so it's it's essentially the big famous drinks that, you know, we know of today. Like besides, of course, water, which is the classic, you got beer, you got wine, you got spirits. So like hard liquor uh cola tea and i'm forgetting another one why am i forgetting the other one coffee
1: Coffee.
0: yes i don't know why i would be forgetting about coffee because we're going to be doing another thing on coffee as well anyway the reason why i chose this one is because it has a very fascinating history but the the audiobook It's pretty – it's like a seven-hour listen, which is not too long at all, especially when you're doing things. But it covers so many different topics that are good and easily digestible segments. And I knew writing this that there was no way in hell I was going to be able to cover all of them. So I chose to focus more on a singular aspect that I love because we're we're talking going back ancient history into like times of myth and legend and all of this stuff. I wanted to talk about – beer today which is it's an interesting thing because i don't really like beer for the most part i mean gabby you love beer in the case of ipas and other stuff like you love the beer beers like the hoppier the better
1: yeah because it's good
0: i mean okay the, our definition of good in that case is a little bit subjective i, I, you I i'm like, like hoppy drink listen cider is where it's at if it's sweet it's for me like, that's that's, that's that's the way I live, which also probably does not help me overall health-wise, but that's an entire other thing right there. I wanted to talk about beer because it has such a cool history because the intoxicant that we in English call beer, that take its, takes its name from Latin bibere or "biber," which, which if you translate it, if you're looking at the German word, bier or a beer, meaning to drink. And the Spanish word, you have beer, cerveza, coming from the Latin word cerevisia, for of beer. Which is actually interesting, because beber means to drink in Spanish, but also, bibere, like, that. it's weird how you have cerveza, but then bibere in Latin, like beber, to drink, it's just, it's beer. Like, that's, all of these origins of what we call for drinks, originate from simply an action of meaning, to drink, because that's how common they were I know it sounds random but that's such an interesting little fascinating thing that I love but but even so beer brewing that did not originate with the Romans but rather began thousands of years earlier
1: wait before you hop into this can mm-hmm. I tell you a beer joke
0: go for it is this going to be about bears and your confusion of beer and bear
1: no but okay. what kind of beer do spiders drink
0: uh, uh,
1: bug light
0: Oh God, dang it! Okay, I was trying to think of something with eight legs. I was trying to think if there was anything like that, but my mind kept on going to APA IPAs, and all I was thinking of was a spider in a hipster hat that was trying to drink beer.
1: No, it's just Bud light.
0: No, no, I I mean, that's
1: that, hilarious. No, it is. That
0: was funny. It was funny. I promise you. <laughs> so the um the Chinese were the first one to brew. I guess something that we would call beer, but it wasn't really beer. It was a type of beer, but the product came. The, the product was essentially something like rice along with honey and other stuff. It, it was it was a type of malted grain, but it's not beer. The closest thing that we can associate like ancient beer that is credited to, in fact, the Sumerians of Mesopotamia and most likely began over 10,000 years ago, maybe even older. The site that we know of today as Golden Tepe, which is in modern day Iran, that has provided evidence of beer brewing around 3,500 B.C., while sites excavated in Sumer suggest an even earlier date based on ceramics, considering the remains of beer jugs and residue that was found in these ancient containers. So there are there are possible dates of even 4000 B.C. as to how old beer is. The craft of beer And it's brewing. Now, that traveled to Egypt through trade, and the Egyptians would, over time, gradually improve upon the original process, because we're going to get into this, but that original process is... It is not something that nowadays we would think of as beer. And the actual history of how it developed is really weird and interesting. So they created a lighter product that enjoyed much greater popularity. Now, although beer was known afterwards to the Greeks and the Romans, it never really gained the same kind of following. As it did in those ancient cultures, because those cultures like the the, the Greeks and the Romans, they preferred wine and they thought that beer was a barbarian drink. And that was one of many things that they regarded as barbarian drinks and things. But some of those, quote unquote, barbarians are people like the Germans who they perfected the art of brewing and creating what is today recognized as beer. But in order to understand this, I mean, we got to go back to the beginning, like back to like Neolithic times and back to Mesopotamia. The process that we now recognize as beer brewing began in Mesopotamia at Golden Tepe Settlement, which is now in modern day Iran between approximately 3500 and 3100 B.C. Evidence of beer manufacturing has been confirmed between these dates, but it is also probable that the brewing of beer in Sumer, which is southern Mesopotamia and modern-day Iraq, wasn't practiced much earlier. We don't really know. Like, we just – there is no way to absolutely guarantee it, but you can theorize based off some evidence of what people have found, and some of that evidence has had to be interpreted over time, which – If you look at it that way, that sets the date of beer brewing at Golden Tepe as early as 10,000 B.C. Like we're talking right when agriculture was first developing in the region, which I mean, some scholars have contended that beer was discovered accidentally through grains that were used for bread making when when they were, you know, fermented. Whereas others claimed that it actually came before bread as a kind of staple and that it was developed intentionally as a kind of intoxicant. Which is a really interesting thing to think about because we, we know beer is an intoxicant. We know what well, alcohol specifically is because it has some interesting effects. So the natural of order things is that fruits would naturally ferment through the actions of wild yeast and the resultant kind of alcohol that it would create in the wild was often sought out and enjoyed by different animals. I mean, I remember as a kid seeing like little shows of, uh of like dinosaurs, like these old dinosaurs that would go in and specifically look for, you know, grapes that I say great dinosaurs. It's more like um, this is at the time where it was like the early mammals. So these early mammals were going around and finding, grapes and other fruits that had fallen onto the ground and fermented and they would consume them. And the more that they would consume, the more drunk that they would get. And it's very likely that the pre-agricultural humans in various areas from the Neolithic period would surely have seen the same kinds of things and what was happening to these animals and would have sought out these different kinds of fermenting fruit and probably even collected wild fruits in the hope that they would have also a kind of, Interesting physical effect, you know, that being it intoxicating if it was left in the open air or I guess I guess the way that they probably would have termed it was that for them, this would have been something that would have been magical. And so the earliest known alcoholic beverage may have been brewed around 7000 B.C. in China, at least what we know of in this village called Jiahu. And where the, they have this Neolithic pottery that it shows evidence of a kind of mead-type concoction being made from rice, honey, and fruit. Because the, these were all things that rice being a grain, honey having its natural sugars, and of course fruit with its sugars, all of these things were capable of being fermented. I mean, you can have rice beer, honey is used to make mead, and fruit for wine. All of these things together over time naturally would kind of make their own intoxicant. And so this theory of intentional brewing of intoxicants, whether it be beer, wine, or some other kind of drink, that is supported by the historical record, which strongly suggests that human beings, after taking care of their immediate needs of, you know, food, shelter, and basic civilization, like, you know, the things that you need to actually have a kind of society, they will then pursue the creation of some type of intoxicant, like they're going to look for something that goes beyond their immediate needs, whether for spiritualism or for pleasure. And this is only possible, though, with a more kind of sedentary agricultural lifestyle, because without agriculture, there really is no way to obtain enough cereals to use to brew in addition to feeding oneself and family. Like you need a surplus in order to be able to Do things. Now, these cereals would be in high demand as both a consistent, predictable food, but also as a source of sugar or sweetness through the discovery of the term, the term is malting, which I mean, you may have heard of the term malt, but you might not know exactly why that is important. I mean, I mean, Gabby, you've had malted candies and malted drinks. It was something that you, you've given them to me multiple times when we went to the grocery store and you'd give me the things like um what what is that one drink? Um Malta, Malta. Goya.
1: It's literally called Malta.
0: Yes. Now yeah, I do those I, are
1: great. They're amazing.
0: They're, I don't think they're all that good though. Like the thing is you would describe them as sweet for this here, and I never understood that. But of course, that's because my palate is so overloaded like with
1: dr. Pepper. you literally do not
0: wait a minute wait a minute are you going to shit on dr pepper
1: absolutely it's so bad
0: it is so good
1: it is the opposite of you know what we can have this argument after the episode but you're wrong i'm right thank
0: you okay <laughs> god future debate the history of soda including dr pepper all right oh wait actually that would be a good one hmm There's an idea. But okay, I wanted to go into that because remember how you would tell me how malt, like these malted drinks, they're sweet, but I would taste and be like, that's not sweet at all. That doesn't make any kind of sense. Like, this is bitter. Yes. Okay, so... I always wondered, like, why is that? Like, what, what is this? And I had to really go and look it up because it all comes from the process of molting that I didn't realize this was something that actually makes it sweet. And this is where I guess my palate is ruined by all the sugars that we have now. So if you look at it, malt what it is is a germinated cereal grain that has been dried in a process known as malting. So malted barley or malt, which is, you know, what its more common name is, it's a kind of package of starch, enzymes, proteins, vitamins and minerals plus a bunch of other little parts that provide the brewer that is using it or the distiller with their main raw material. The grains are made to germinate by soaking them in water, where that, and they're then halted from germinating further by drying with hot air. What happens is these molting grains develop the enzymes that are required for modifying the grain starches into varying types of sugars, including things like monosaccharide glucose, uh, disaccharide glucose, triascaride malt triose, and and other sugars that are called maltodextrins. So they, they are actually creating sugars which are Sweet. Now, in the ancient world, this likely occurred first as an accident because early storage was not the best. I mean, you've seen what happens with a Ziploc container and all this where stuff still gets into it, despite all of the advanced stuff that we have to keep things dry and prepared. In the ancient world, hell no, they did not have this. So containers were not air and watertight, which means that any grain that was harvested and stored would very likely, at some point, perhaps very quickly, Get wet. And this is just what would happen. So as they got wet and as this process occurred naturally, they would develop other enzymes like proteases, which would break down proteins in the grain into forms that can actually be used by yeast. So depending on when the malting process is stopped, one gets a kind of preferred starch-to-enzyme ratio and partly converted starch into fermentable sugars. Malt also contains small amounts of other sugars, such as sucrose and fructose, which are not products of starch modification but were already in the grain further conversion to fermentable sugars is achieved during the mashing process so the the thing is these sugars when you have a person that is in the ancient world keep in mind your entire diet the only sugars that you are ever getting is from fresh fruit or perhaps some dried fruit. That means in the spring, the summer, maybe early fall, depending on whatever is available, those are the only sources of sugars that you have. And then it's fruit. There are really no other like they don't have sugar cane. They don't have these other things. So when someone has a malted drink and it tastes slightly sweet, that sweetness to them was huge. I mean, I genuinely think that if a if you gave a sweet tart to a caveman, that person would probably just overload and their brain would just fry right there because of how much concentrated sugar there is.
1: They didn't have high fructose corn syrup. Wow.
0: No, they uh, they didn't forget the syrup. (laughs) They didn't have even regular stuff. Like you only had fruit. It's one of the reasons why. uh, Okay. So we look back at the history of baking which goddamn we're going on we're going to go on so many different tangents from this but if you look at the history of baking a lot of the early um a lot of the early sweets and other stuff especially in Europe where it, they didn't really have sugars that were grown you had fruit so your pastries were like the, the most you ever had were honey cakes and these kinds of things fruit would be baked into breads and other things to make pastries and that was the natural sweetener that's what you had but you only had that product when it was in season you couldn't grow the fruit year round and then use that so that still meant there were large periods of time where there really was no sugars in the diet you can understand then why during the ages of colonialism why sugar was such a huge big deal and why it was in constant demand everywhere hey everyone like who you here and before we get back to the show i would just like to thank today's sponsor ebay motors ebay motors is here for the ride You're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
1: So, you know how on the paleo diet you have to eat, like, basically what people would have eaten at the beginning when we didn't have sugar and all of that stuff? Yeah. So, do you think beer is part of the paleo diet?
0: It is. It is if made in a certain way and we're going to get into that because it's such a it's such an interesting thing but when i say beer we we're, we're, we're talking something more like porridge and what i'm about to detail and explain to you is probably no. good no, yes it's going to gross you the hell out but th- this is how it would happen so Although beer is recognized in the modern day as having been developed in Europe, specifically Germany, like when all beer, if we're looking at the root of proper beer, that specifically comes from Germany and then developed in many different ways. But we're going to get to that. The first kinds of brew were enjoyed in ancient Mesopotamia, but these people enjoyed their beer so much that it was a daily dietary staple. We're talking they had paintings, Poems, myths, all different kinds of things that would depict human beings and gods enjoying beer. And what they did is they would consume it through a straw to filter out pieces of bread or herbs that were in the drink.
1: That's disgusting.
0: Yeah. The brew was thick. We're talking the consistency of modern-day porridge, and the straw was invented by the Sumerians or the Babylonians, like one of them, and it's thought specifically that that is what it was done for the purpose of drinking beer. I'll give you this as an example. There's this famous poem called the Inanna, in which the god of wisdom describes the two deities drinking beer together and the god of wisdom Enki becomes so drunk that he gives away the sacred Me, or the laws of civilization, to Inanna, which is thought to symbolize the transfer of power from Eridu, the city of Enki, to Uruk, the city of Inanna. This is all in Mesopotamia, where they're all divided into a bunch of city-states, and they each have their own kind of national god. And it's a very complicated, competitive mess. You have this Sumerian poem called The Hymn to Ninkasi, which is both a song of praise to the goddess of beer, Ninkasi, and also it's a song that is literally a recipe for beer, which was first written down around 1800 BC. Which, mind you, that makes it the oldest written recipe for beer in the world. And I think actually it's one of the oldest recipes. There are technically older recipes out there, but this is specifically the oldest recipe for beer ever. And so, in the Sumerian Babylonian Epic of Gilgamesh, which is a very famous story that I'm probably going to need to go in and cover at some point here. You have this hero called Enkidu, who was kind of a wild man, and he becomes civilized through the ministrations of the temple harlot, Shamat, who among other things, she teaches him to drink beer. And so later in the story, you have this barmaid called Siduri, who counsels Gilgamesh into giving up his quest for the meaning of life and simply enjoying what it has to offer, including beer, which I find a hilarious way to kind of end things on there is literally, hey, you know how you have this big, important life mission? Chill, relax. Crack open a cold one with the boys. Just just relax, which I find also interesting because there they was not chilled. We're talking about the Sumerian Babylonian, like, you know, Mesopotamian desert. The, the, the drinks there were not chilled. This is not an ice cold beer. So, Gabby, remember that how I told you it was the consistency of porridge. I want you to think of like 80 degree. We're talking lukewarm porridge beer that you're sucking out of a pot through a straw with no refrigeration.
1: That's disgusting. That yes. That is not, that is not, at least they got drunk, right?
0: Well, Yeah, yeah, they would in varying ways, though it was never really consistent, which is that really interesting thing. Remember how I talked to you about, um, remember how the, the whole thing, you have to get yeast, like yeast is specifically what is used to make beer. Like we know nowadays what yeast is and how it makes stuff. They didn't know. All they knew was that when you had these stuff with grain, which has natural yeasts on it, that over time if it got wet that it would turn into this and so there were all these kinds of myths and legends around it where they would like brewers would specifically have their own mash tub think of it like um, it's a good luck charm they would carry their tub with them it's like if you were going to go to a job and that you had a work computer there but you didn't trust the work computer so you only brought your computer and that's it and you took it everywhere you have this massive office with this massive setup but you only bring and use your computer that's it So they had all of these myths and legends, which is actually real, not the legends part, but the actual effect of why they would do this is a real thing. They didn't add yeast. They just knew that if you used the same mash tubs over and over and over and over again, that the likelihood of having a successful brew increased, that it was better. And the reason for that was because all of the yeast that were left over in the tub from the previous time that you brewed would still be there in the cracks of the pot. So when you then brewed again, there was more yeast. So it increased the likelihood that the yeast would actually work. They
1: they had a sourdough starter.
0: They literally had a sourdough starter. Yes, it was sourdough starter beer. Yes, that is a great way to put it.
1: I, I let's do that. Let's let's make some sourdough starter beer. Are, are we
0: going to are we just going to get like one of those pots that we have sitting up on the mantle? Well, you know, one of the fine Chinese like vases and just yes. <laughs> and make homemade beer in it. Yes, let's do it. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> so, wow, that would. Yeah, that's interesting. Wow. Oh, uh side note, because I also find this interesting. Remember how I said that? uh Remember how I said temple harlot? Do you know what that is?
1: Yeah, no. No idea.
0: No. Okay, so Temple Harlot, a harlot is a prostitute, so it was a sacred form of prostitution, or, or at least how we term or think of it today. If I'm going to kind of explain this the way that that works for anyone that is listening and doesn't really know, the dominating religious theme of all ancient societies, we're talking all of them from the earliest time, was fertility. Like, we're talking fertility, crops, herds, people. Like, that. that is where... That is where you saw the most power and control because the way to bounty and plenty and life and power that came from being able to produce stuff. So naturally, fertility gods and goddesses were usually the most powerful gods in early religions. The divine powers who ruled the universe occurred in male and female pairs so they could be approached for the benefit of fertility for humans. I mean, that's particularly relevant to the creation and worship of all of these different mother goddesses like I was talking about. We're talking Inanna in Sumer in like Sumer. You have Ishtar in Mesopotamia, Hathor and Isis in Egypt, like all different kinds of people like Demeter, Aphrodite, Venus, etc. All of these goddesses ruled human sexuality. And so the erotic use of the body birth and children was all a factor in them for when they were being prayed to. Mind you, there's a lot of debate between scholars in which the way that the worship of these fertility deities was instituted, we don't necessarily know. Because there's a concept that was known as sacred prostitution or temple prostitution, which are referenced in ancient cultures of Sumerian Mesopotamia, and the idea of that spread throughout the Mediterranean basin, though the term temple prostitute or temple prostitution is more of a modern one and it's it's not exactly correct scholars equated these kinds of temple servants which mind you were both men and women in these fertility cults with prostitution but it it wasn't It wasn't the same thing because our modern depiction of these temple servants was influenced by Herodotus. Do you remember when I covered a lot of the stuff with Herodotus and all of the crazy things that he wrote? Like when he was trying to describe the hippopotamus and all that stuff where he's the father of history. But when you actually read his history, you're like, holy crap, what the hell is he talking about?
1: He did his best. I will not stand for Herodotus slander. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> so one of the things he wrote about is that when he went to Babylonia, he wrote and I quote, the foulest Babylonian custom is that which compels every woman of the land to sit in the temple of Aphrodite, which is not at the time Aphrodite, it would be, you know, the local love goddess, but essentially it's they're going to make the equation of it and have intercourse with some stranger once in her life. It does not matter what sum the money is, the woman will never refuse for that would be a sin. The money being made act by this sacred. After their intercourse, having discharged her sacred duty to the goddess, she goes away to her home. So basically it's like a once in your life you're called to be a hoe at the temple, like a literally a cheap hoe, and then Go, And like that's apparently doing your sacred duty. At least that's what he wrote. There's not really anything supporting that. Remember when I said that we called Herodotus the father of modern history, but he simultaneously was a huge exaggerator and at many points straight fibber. Like he would describe things as real or matter of fact that simply don't exist. Let me give you an example, which is one of my personal favorites from his work, Histories, which involves gold digging ants. Do you remember when we covered that?
1: Sorry, I zoned out. I'll be honest with you. What?
0: The the gold digging ants. Remember, like those giant ants that dug gold in India?
1: When did we cover that?
0: Okay, no, a while ago. And admittedly, it was on my TikTok and for other things for it here. Okay. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna explain this. Essentially, he wrote in his history that there were Indians in a tribe, which th- we're talking. We're not talking American Indians. Like this is the this is ancient Greece. So we're looking at India, India. So they're looking at the north, who would border the city of something called Caspatris, which is on the country of Pactria, which is next to. Bactria. Okay, there's a lot of names in here that you're essentially not going to recognize, but this is a lot of how they would have situated the ancient world. And Bactria was located in what we associate as modern day Pakistan. Like that's where that is. It was a Greek dominated state that ruled over an eastern uh, substrata of people. And it's a leftover state from you have like Alexander the Great's conquests. So, they are more warlike than any of the other tribes, and from them men are sent forth who go to procure gold, for it is this part of India in the sandy desert that gold lies. Here in this desert there live among the sand great giant ants that are in size somewhat less than dogs, but bigger than foxes. The Persian king has a number of them, which have been caught by the hunters in the land whereof we are speaking. Those ants make their dwellings underground, and like the Greek ants, they very much resemble in shape, throw up sand heaps as they burrow. Now the sand which they throw up is full of gold and the Indians, when they go to the desert to collect this sand, take three camels and rein. The rider sits on the female and they are are very particular to choose, for the purpose, one that has but just dropped her young, for their female camels can run as fast as horses while they bear burdens very much better. When the Indians, therefore, have thus supplied them themselves, they set off in quest of gold, calculating the time that they may be engaging in seizing it during the most sultry part of the day, when the ants hide themselves to escape the heat. The sun in those parts shines fiercest in the morning, not as elsewhere at noonday. The greatest heat is from the time when he has reached a certain height until the hour at which market closes. During the space, he burns much more furiously than midday at Greece, so that men there are said at that time to drench themselves with water. At noon, his heat is much in the same in India as in other countries, after which, as the day declines, the warmth is only equal to that of the morning sun elsewhere, but towards the evening, the coolness increases, till about sunset it becomes very cold. When the Indians reach the place where the gold is, they fill their bags with sand and ride away at their best speed, the ants, however, scenting them, as the Persians say, rush forth in pursuit. Essentially, you have these guys that are like Indiana Jones, that are going in, taking copious amounts of bags of sand that these ants have just flung out onto the desert apparently that is filled with gold and then they're trying to escape but for some reason the ants really care about that and so these ants that are the size of foxes or small dogs are chasing after them now these animals are, they declare so swift that there is nothing in the world like them. If it were not, therefore, that the Indians get a start while the ants are mustering, not a single gold-gatherer could escape. During the flight, the male camels, which are not so fleet as the females, grow tired and begin to drag, first one, then the other. But the females recollect the young, which they have left behind, and never give way or flag. Such, according to the Persians, is the manner in which the Indians get the greater part of their gold, as some is dug out of the earth but of this the supply is more scanty essentially the majority of india's gold is done by these guys that are using male camels as bait or not exactly bait but as scapegoats abandoning them to the ants to rush over and feed while they escape with bags of sand gold
1: those poor camels.
0: Yeah. So, that's I mean, so sad. that's the idea. But, OK, there was another thing where I was reading where there's a possible number of interpretations as to what actually this is or if the whole thing is just fake. Because, mind you, it's Herodotus. A bunch of things that he does are tied in with um, it's tied in with myth and legend and all of this. So Herodotus is not exactly the best source, but. But at many different points, it's all that we have. Like There is this thing that they found, I think, back in the 90s, where this team of people found that in the area where Herodotus is purportedly describing in this Pakistan region, that there are not ants, but marmots that do go and dig up sand. And in that sand, there is a higher amount percentage of gold, like gold. Uh, gold dust so it is very possible that when he was referencing ants that the the story is real but it's not ants it was actually based on these marmots and the word changed over time because he never actually went to India like he wrote all this as he was in Egypt it's quite far away at that time (laughs) like very far away so when he's writing this The word, I think, if I recall correctly, for Persian, for marmot, was literally sand ant. I think if they did a translation. So it is very possible that that is where that comes from and that it's real. But just because of the way that a translation worked, people all across Europe for hundreds, if not thousands of years, thought that in India there was gigantic ants that would harvest gold. And people were running like sting operations to try and seize it. What? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I could do so many more podcasts on prostitution and Herodotus and all that different stuff. Several, in fact. But I realized that we went on a little bit of a tangent here and kind of yeah. need to get back to beer. Yeah, I, I, I've been I,
1: wondering how we ended up here for like
0: <laughs> we five went
1: minutes now.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry. We went from beer to temple prostitutes to Herodotus to ants in India to more theories about that. Yeah, there's a lot of different things. But – what we were talking about was it, that comes from the poem of the epic of gilgamesh which that tells the tale of Gilgamesh, and one of the characters in it is this wild man called Enkidu, who is required to slay a demon that is living in a distant cedar forest. That wild man is then persuaded to join civilization from a prostitute, as we said, named Shanat, who educates him in the way of men with the following words. And this is where the poem comes in. Enkidu knew nothing about eating bread for food, and of drinking beer he had not been taught. The harlot spoke to Enkidu, saying, Eat the food, Enkidu, it is the way one lives. Drink the beer, as is the custom of the land. Enkidu ate the food until he was sated, and he drank the beer, seven jugs worth, and became expansive and sang with joy. Essentially, he ate a bunch of beer and drank, or he, well, I say ate, yeah, he basically ate the beer, because mind you, at this time, it's literally porridge for here, but he, he ate all the food, he drank the beer, he got super bloated, but drunk, and was then just really happy. Which, I mean, that
1: sounds all right. That sounds about the universal beer to
0: me. It's a very timeless image that you know. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. <laughs> so that, that, that's essentially what it is. Beer was equal to civilization. That is what it was to the ancients. If you did not drink beer, that meant that you weren't a person. Like you were you were a wild person and the Sumerians had many different words for beer from uh, sikaru to Dida to a which literally meant beer mug. And they regarded the drink as a kind of gift from the gods that would use it to promote human happiness and their well-being and health. I mean, there were magical spells. Like one of these things was, I think, for uh, like for a fever, the, the, the cure for a fever was onion and beer. Like you just you ground up an onion, you put it in beer, and you 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 drank that shit. Boom. I can't say Fever beer,
1: but onion and garlic are actually great when you have a cold. So maybe you
0: know, that well, is yeah. one of the things. Oh, but there, there's a real thing. The beer at the time was actually very valuable in nutrients. We're going to get into that later, but if you look at the difference between agricultural societies, early agricultural societies and the hunter-gatherer societies, agricultural societies had more food, but hunter-gatherer societies had better healthier food in that they had more vitamins. They had more they had a greater variant of stuff that they were ingesting that was good for them because when you're pretty much limited to a couple crops you're not really getting much in the way of nutrition you think like you you really are not you're able to get enough you're able to eat but you're not ever going to be as big and strong as someone who was living a hunter-gatherer lifestyle and actually succeeding mind you you wouldn't be able to sustain a large number of people but for a couple people you could have really strong people So they had all these different kinds of beer that were made in different ways. The original brewers of these were women who were the priestesses of Ninkasi, the goddess of beer, and women would brew beer regularly in the home as part of their preparation for meals. You see, this beer was made from something called Bipar, which is twice-baked barley bread, which you'd take that, you'd break it apart, you'd ferment it, and then you'd put it in the jar to make beer and as beer brewing was always associated with baking this is what you would do so you it was had-
1: a crouton so it's essentially a cr- crouton.
0: Yeah, think of it yeah think of it kind of like a crouton except an alcoholic crouton
1: i would like an alcoholic crouton <clears throat> let's let's make that a thing can we patent that
0: well it was a crouton that you would make alcoholic to be fair like that's that's what you would do but yes Actually, could we do that? Oh, wait, no, no. There's a stat. Um, If I recall, what was it? There have been people who there is technically small traces of alcohol in pasta dishes, right? That is a thing. So on states that have zero tolerance, like you cannot have a single bit of alcohol at all. If you just came from an olive garden, all you can eat buffet, then and you got pulled over and they took a breathalyzer test on you, it is very possible that you will have a, you will have a reading of alcohol. Not enough that you would ever qualify as legally drunk or anything, but it would still detect alcohol on you, which in turn would cause you to get arrested. What? That is a thing that has actually happened. Yes. That's not great. I know, but it's it's genuinely funny how that can occur. So, essentially All garden buffets. (laughs) Gateways to getting arrested for drunk driving? (laughs) I guess.
1: You can't say that.
0: That sounds so weird to say, but it actually is possible. (laughs) But... There's a lot of these really famous beer, like one of them was called the Alulu beer, which it had. There was this receipt from the city of Ur in 2050 B.C. that shows the beer brewing had become very commercialized at that time. It wasn't just something that was done in the home. There's this tablet they have that acknowledges the receipt of five silas of the best beer from the brewer, Lulu, which five silas is approximately, if you want to equate it to anything, it's essentially a liter. It might be a little less. It might be a little more, like four and a half to five and a half liters, but it's around a liter. So you have the equivalent of these five liters of beer that is just a sales receipt because people are using that as part of a kind of commodity to do things. These silas of beer would be used to do just about everything. You'd pay workers as part of a standard ration for their services, and they were very easy to use as a kind of tradable commodity. Each laborer was given approximately one sila of beer per day, and then high-rank workers and officials, they would be paid more beer, like three, four, five silas worth of beer in one day because then you would – This official would have their own tasks to do. So they would give people silas of beer. To do those tasks basically. You have a guy sitting in an office and he goes, Man, I really need this tablet brought down. Which, oh, yeah, tablet like a clay tablet. I need to stress that. I'm not saying he's bringing an iPad down to someone. <laughs> so he's got this clay tablet that has these numbers on it for the upcoming harvest or whatever. And he's like, Damn, uh, I have this thing to do. I need to run this to the other side of the city. Hey, uh, you dude out there on the street, run this over to this location. I'm going to give you a cup of beer. Okay. And that's literally it. You'd use beer as money.
1: I would use beer as money. Like if I were to be paid in beer, I would be like, "Okay, this works for me.
0: Yup. So that's what they would do. And then under Babylonian rule, all this Mesopotamian beer production would increase dramatically, becoming even more commercialized, which would result in laws being made that would be instituted concerning Beer production, sale, and in general, what would go on in a tavern? Remember, uh, remember the Code of Hammurabi, which I probably need to do a, a a video or a podcast on this, just examining it because it's the earliest law code that we have. Like it, this, this is one of the true signs of civilization. Remember, an eye I for an eye. I Absolutely,
1: know what this is because remember how I told you I'd always pay attention to the first like three chapters of every history class. Yeah. I paid attention to that because it was in the first three chapters.
0: It would be because it's the beginning of civilization. That does make a lot of sense. Okay, so if you look at paragraphs 108 through 110, we have first off over a tavern, right? If a tavern keeper does not accept grain according to gross weight in payment of a drink, but takes money and the price of the drink is less than that of the grain, she shall be convicted and thrown into water which you might wonder, wait, why does it use the word she? It's because all of these people that would own the stuff and do the brewing, remember what we discussed, they were female. Typically, it was women who were doing a lot of the stuff for brewing until later on it became more men. So what that means is that these these tavern keepers, if they poured short measures of beer in return for cash instead of grain, which could be weighed and then held to a measure to cheat customers, they would be drowned if they caught doing so. Because you would trade beer, grain, or you would trade the grains of these different cereals as a kind of weight. So you trade one pound of this for one pound of that, which is, I guess, easier to do or carry when you're using, you know, a sack because the inside commodity is grain. But if you have slightly thicker pottery or anything like that, you could technically put in less beer and someone is not going to catch it because there's more weight that comes from the pottery. Like, that's just something. Like, you could use these things to cheat people. So, if you shortchange people by paying in beer, then they're going to drown you in the river.
1: They're going to what?
0: Then they're going to drown you in the river because you shortchanged someone. Yes. Eye for an eye. But in this case, it's you shortchange me, you drown.
1: And they were just cool with
0: that. Basically, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, the code of Hammurabi was harsh. It's one of the earliest law codes, but you remember that like everything in there is incredibly brutal and unfair, but it's still a kind of fairness of what they thought would be fair, even though we would never consider 90% of that to be fair nowadays. The next one they had on here is One o nine. If conspirators meet in a house of a tavern keeper and these conspirators are not captured and delivered to the court, the tavern keeper shall be put to death. Which what that means is if you have a bar and you have some people go in who are either they're running from the law or they're planning to commit a crime and they're talking about it and planning it and then they do it and you don't stop them. Like if you overhear it and do nothing, you don't report it to the authorities. You're going to be put to death because you let a crime happen. You're an accessory.
1: I mean that I can see.
0: Yeah, that one makes Why would more you not sense.
1: Report it? Were you in on it? Now, how do we know you're not in on it? You didn't report it.
0: That's precisely it. Like there, there's a theory, of course, that would go in where someone would they, they they would meet at a place, and the tavern keeper might be in on it. They might be accepting bribes to keep quiet, etc. That's the other one the last one on here is interesting though if a sister of god opens a tavern or enters a tavern to drink then the woman will be burned to death wait <laughs> oh, <for the laughs> yeah, yeah yeah i know i know we're getting there we're getting there go ahead ask away ask away
1: why i mean i don't have anything to ask except specifically how do they find sister of god
0: okay sister of god would be a priestess. Essentially, because if you are a priestess, then you are quite literally seen as being an agent of the gods or having parts of the God in you. Like you you are a holy, divine thing. Mind you, this is these are cities with God kings. The kings are literally living gods. So the priests are people who interpret God's will. They are the elite of the elite.
1: Okay. Okay, that makes sense then. So it's not just like all women. It's just... just, So if they took an oath to be holy, I guess, it makes sense. What about the brothers of God?
0: Well, that that was... It This one specifically says female, I need to verify if it has to do anything with men too, but I don't think that they would just by virtue of they, why would you enter a tavern or why would you open one? Because what they're talking about here is it's not that you're not allowed to drink beer. You shouldn't drink beer. Beer is seen as a very holy good thing. It's that if you open a tavern, which is a common low class establishment, or you go to one of these taverns to drink, like with all the common folk, then you're tainting yourself. And I think that this was more to do with the women, because women oftentimes in this case, you would have some sisters of God who they were married to the gods. They were virgins. They had to be virgins. So if you're entering a place of low class debauchery, you could be seen as impure.
1: Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense then. Yeah, that checks out. It's just a bit harsh.
0: (laughs) Woman will be burned to death. Yeah, that checks out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hey. oh but no I get it. It, it, it that's just that's where it comes from because you had to maintain yourself to a strict kind of code and that's how societies pretty much handled themselves that's that that that's what they did so that was the Sumerians and the Babylonians of them the Egyptians became it became very It became even more popular than it was in Mesopotamia because you had the Egyptian goddess of beer who was called Tenenit. And this this was a name that derives from something called Tenemu, which is one of the Egyptian words for beer. The most popular beer in Egypt was something called Heket, which was a kind of honey flavored brew. And their word for beer in general was Zetum. Essentially, beer was everywhere. The workers all over the place, they were being paid in beer. Like, the workers at the Giza Plateau, like where you have the pyramids of Giza, they would receive beer rations three times a day, and beer was often then used throughout the rest of Egypt as just compensation for labor. Like, this was what you would trade. It was the easiest thing that you could do, and it's what everyone wanted. Which, yeah, the, the pyramids were not built with slave labor. They were built with paid laborers, laborers who were paid in beer. It's like one of the most common... history fun facts that people give nowadays is like oh yeah did you know that the ancient Egyptians were paid in beer like the the people who built the pyramids were paid beer like that's what you did just you know me and the bros getting together cracking open a lukewarm porridge and building a pyramid you know doing what we do. In fact, in fact, when I say cracking open one with the boys, they genuinely did have different groups. Like people would get nicknames based off the laboring groups that they were a part of because there's graffiti that shows these nicknames. One of them was called the drunkards of Menkar. That's a good name. So it was just this band of dudes that really they would build stuff. And apparently they really liked beer. They liked beer so much. Maybe they got paid extra for it that they were known as the drunkards of Menkar. You see, the Egyptians believed that brewing wasn't a bad thing. Like these were this was something that, like the Mesopotamians, like a lot of early societies, they thought that this was taught to humans by The gods, specifically, the Egyptians thought that it was taught by Osiris himself and that in this and other regards, they reviewed beer much in the same way as the Mesopotamians did, because as in Mesopotamia, women were the chief brewers, at least at first. Over time, this would change. Initially, they would brew things in their home and the initially or the, the beer initially was that same thick porridge like consistency and was brewed in the same kind of way. But over time, men gradually took over the business of brewing. So beer played a very integral role in this popular myth. Like it was something that was huge. Like beer is responsible for saving the world and the birth of the goddess Hathor. So according to the tale, which forms a part of the text of the Book of the Heavenly Cow, which is a version of the great flood myth, which predates the biblical tale of the flood in biblical book of Genesis, you have the big God, Ra, who is like the God of the sun and the God that the pharaohs are purportedly descended from. And he is pissed. He is pissed off because humans are shitty. Which I mean, it checks out if you if you've listened to any of this podcast and you've seen anything with humans, you know, over time, humans are humans can be really shitty. Like, Gabby, what happens every time I ask you? And in the end, they were all happy and everything worked out fine.
1: They live happily ever after the end.
0: Yeah, that never happens. It, it it, well, I say never. It rarely ever happens because usually something stupid ends up or terrible ends up happening. So Raw sees how shitty humans are and he's like, wow, these guys are rebelling against me. I don't want them anymore. They suck. So he sends Hathor to Earth in order to destroy them, to just completely get rid of them. Hathor sets to work and she just turns into this immense Entity of bloodlust that and just slaughters humanity. She transforms herself into the goddess Sekhmet, which is the lion headed goddess, the goddess of war. Ra is at first pretty happy with it. He's like, Yeah, okay, that's what you get, you dirty, dirty, smelly humans. How dare you be stupid? But then he realizes something, which is like the great fallacy of a lot of these early gods. When we look at, um, when we look at say modern religion when you look at christianity islam buddhism a lot of the stuff we typically think of gods or entities as being more perfect like when you look at christianity you look at judaism you look at islam yahweh god allah all that he he's
1: everybody shush william shatner has something to say
0: cat and jethro box of oddities what do you do when the woman you love dies
1: Yes. Perf- I mean, yeah?
0: Okay, well, yeah. Per the biblical sense of it, God is perfect. Like, that's what it is. Depending on your beliefs, you may question some things, but per the belief of the system, God is perfect. Absolute. In the ancient world, the gods were just... They were more extreme humans. They were vengeful. They were spiteful. They were horny. They were... Especially in the case of the Greeks, like, they were flawed. They were people with superpowers to a much, 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 much more extreme degree. And that's just what the gods were. So, Ra, looking at all this, realizes, like, oh, hey, hold on, wait a minute. Um, As Sekhmet is destroying every town and city, uh, then that means there's not going to be any people alive to worship me anymore. Oh, yeah, I don't want that.
1: So they just made, like, a really nice god, I guess, and that god. And, yeah, that makes sense.
0: So th- that's, that's essentially what happened. The, the Ra realizes that if Sekhmet Hathor destroys destroys everything, then there's there's not going to be any people alive to worship him. So he has to work on a plan to stop her. What he does is gets a huge amount of beer. He dyes it red. And then drops it off at the city of Dendera, where Segment, thinking that, oh, she's just come across this huge pool of blood, she stops her rampage to now drink. When she drinks it, she apparently gets really drunk, falls asleep, and then wakes up transformed back into the goddess Hathor, the benevolent cow deity of all things nice. Music, laughter, the sky, and gratitude. Here's the question. Um, was she
1: used to coming across giant pools of blood and then drinking it?
0: Uh, yeah. So the 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 tale, as it goes in more detail, is that as she's rampaging and creating literal rivers of blood as she's killing people, she's drinking that blood.
1: Okay, thank you for clarifying. That makes it much worse. Yes. <laughs>
0: yes. Exactly. <laughs> So that's the Egyptians. Beer brewing then traveled from Egypt to Greece, but it didn't really find the same kind of receptive people there because the Greeks favored strong wine over beer as did the Romans and a number of other people around the Mediterranean. Both cultures really considered beer as a kind of low-class drink of the barbarians. You had the Roman historian Tacitus, who wrote of the Germans, saying, To drink, the Teutons have this horrible brew fermented from barley or wheat, a brew which has a very far-removed similarity to wine. And the emperor Julian composed a poem where he claimed the scent of wine was of nectar, while the smell of beer... Was that of a goat? Which I mean, he's if,
1: not wrong. Listen, not wrong.
0: if you're looking at beer, especially when it's ancient fermented porridge beer, <laughs> I can kind of imagine that that is, um, th- that th- that that it probably was kind of goat like at time, depending on the herbs and stuff that they put in it, <laughs> you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, like I, yeah.
0: Even so, the that wine be-
1: doesn't smell that good either.
0: I mean, yeah, you know, I guess it's entirely going to depend on what it is they're doing. We got a, There's a whole thing on wine in this book. It's actually really fascinating to look at, especially with the amount of wines that they had, because you had wine from all different kinds of regions, even more so than what we have today. So, the Romans were brewing beer, which they called Cerevisia, quite early, as was evidenced by the tomb of the beer brewer and a merchant called a Cerevisius, which was an ancient trevoris, which is the modern-day Trier. So, Excavations of Roman military encampment all across the Danube, uh, Castor Regina, which in modern day Regensburg, all these different places that were on the frontier where you wouldn't really have access to a lot of wine. They did unearth a lot of evidence of beer brewing on a very significant scale. Essentially, wherever the military went, you'd want to bring wine, but you only had limited quantity so long as supplies lasted. So they pretty much would have to set up things to make something. And in many cases on the march, that's going to be beer. That's just something that would happen. Still, that being said, beer was not just popular uh, or was not just unpopular among the Greeks and the Romans. You had other tribes like the Celts. The Celts live in the area of what we associate now with, say, modern-day France, and they preferred wine much more so over beer. The Celtic tribes would pay stupid amounts of money for wine that was provided by Italian merchants – and the people of Gaul, as it was called before it was France, they were famous for their love of Italian wines. Beer brewing continued to develop over time, and in spite of the views of the elite that it was a low-class drink only suitable to barbarians, it would develop gradually over the course of Europe in places like Germany, which that is that is where beer, as we think of it, really comes from. The Germans were brewing beer, which they called Oll, or ale as early as 800 BC, and they're known for having huge quantities of all different kinds of beer jugs and different things that still contain evidence of beer. Even though a lot of it evaporated, you still have residue that is left, and these these have been found in varying tombs, like in the village of Kassendorf in northern Bavaria. So that practice would continue all the way into the Christian era and is evidenced by all different kinds of archaeological finds and different written records, and they had all of this stuff, as was the case in Mesopotamian Egypt in Germany in the beginning, the brewer were it was primarily women that were doing it called the Hausfrau, who she brewed her beer at home in order to supplement the daily meals. Remember when I said how beer was really high in vitamins and things?
1: Yes, so I actually do remember that one.
0: Essentially, we're going to get into this for how they made the beer with the actual ingredients later, but what they effectively had is... A brew that had lots of different herbs and maybe acorns and all different kinds of things, like all different kinds of additives that would add minerals and stuff that you needed. So beer was typically very high in vitamin B, which is not something that they were able to get a very high amount of from their standard agricultural lifestyle. So people quite literally needed to drink beer in order to have a balanced diet. Like it was necessary.
1: I would like it to be necessary for me.
0: Well, in many cases now, you drink a beer, beer very high in carbs. A beer is an amazing drink to have post-workout.
1: Oh, yeah, that's what I do. I'd like work out really, really hard and then have one beer.
0: Yeah, yeah. Literally, that is a great thing to have. It's it's something that it replenishes your energy and it's very good for you. Like It actually is. So over time, what would happen in Germany is that the craft would be taken over by Christian monks, primarily this is what would happen, it would become a integral part of the monastic lifestyle of all of these monasteries that were being built. Like you had this monastery that was founded in 1349 in Kumblach, which still produces their very famous Schwarzbier, among other things. In 1516, the German Reinsgebot or purity law, was instituted, which regulated the ingredients that could legally be used in brewing beer, which was only water, barley, hops, and then later once they actually discovered it, because they didn't have it at the time, yeast. The Germans, like those who preceded them, also instituted a daily beer ration and considered beer a necessary staple of the diet. Like, it was just something that you had to have. It was a standard fare. Which, oh wait, that's that's actually a thing that I want to touch on. Um, not the fare part, but the ingredients. Hops. Gabby, do you know what hops are exactly? Bread? No, it's a plant.
1: Oh yeah, I had no idea.
0: So, oh, I didn't know this for the longest time. I remember I played a game called um it was Stronghold Crusader or Stronghold 2, right? And in it, when you're making beer to keep your citizens happy so that you can tax them more. Yeah, that that that's a whole thing. <laughs> you, you you give them a bunch of beer and then you just tax the hell out of them. That's you keep them drunk but happy. It's fine. Anyway, one of the ingredients in there, I first learned there what hops were, which at first I thought was like cabbage, but no, it's not. It's um, hops are a perennial plant of the it's the cannabis family, which is it's it's in the same genus as cannabis, right? In beer, hops provide bitterness to balance the sweetness of malt sugars as well as other kinds of flavors, aromas, and resins that would gradually increase head retention and antiseptics to stop spoilage. Essentially, hops were used as a kind of preservative that would also flavor the drink. So it would make it more flavorful and it would stop it from going bad so quickly. This is one of those reasons why those IPAs, they last significantly longer than standard light ales because they're extra hoppy. That's literally why they have a longer shelf life. So often referred to as a kind of vine, hops are actually a bine, like B-I-N-E. They use a strong stem and stiff hairs to climb rather than tendrils and suckers to attach. And it's the flowers of the hop plant that is used in brewing. Because hop flowers or cones, they resemble pine cones, but they're actually composed of thin green papery leaf little bracts. And at the base of those bracts are waxy yellow lupin glands that contain different kinds of Acids, like called an uh, alpha acid, that is responsible for the bitterness and the very, like, just the flavor that it will provide, the essential oils that give beer flavor and aroma. The plant itself has separate kind of male and female binds, but only the female binds develop cones. If the male plant is allowed to pollinate, then the flowers will produce seeds, which renders the entire thing useless for brewing. Like, you have to grow this plant, wait for it to almost reach maturity. And then kill it. And that's like you you harvest the hops to, to use. And a, aside from their use in beer, hops for many centuries also had medicinal application as a kind of sleep aid. So one of the things they would do is they would get hops, right? And they would stuff them into pillows. So hop-filled pillows were at one point in time a common remedy for insomnia. So, Gabby, should we just start stuffing beer under your... Uh under your pillow if you're having difficulty to sleep i mean to be
1: then hops work
0: i mean it was used as a remedy i'm not actually sure if it worked i know this for a fact i know that drinking beer puts you to sleep i don't know necessarily about putting hops inside your pillow doing anything i'm not sure about that yeah so hops believe it or not are actually a relatively new addition to a brewmaster's toolkit. Because prior to the wide adoption of hops, beer would be bittered and flavored with different kinds of spices and herb mixtures, sometimes called grit. Like, think of gruel, Gabby, but essentially grit. So they would have any number of herbs, spices, general just random things like like mugwort, and other kind of stuff, like we're talking henbane, wild rosemary, heather, ginger, spruce, juniper, bog myrtle. Just that's just a couple of them to name a few. And so, in parts of Europe, the blending of gruit, like the things that you would get to make these spices, quote unquote, was a very closely held secret of the gruit guilds that had exclusive rights and kept the specific ingredients secret because that was their brew. And it was their important trade secret, and no one else was allowed to have it. The first documented link between hops and brewing is from 822 AD, when you had this Benedictine abbot who wrote a series of statuettes covering the running of a monastery that included gathering sufficient hops for making beer. Evidence suggests that the commercial hop cultivation began in northern Germany during the 12th or 13th century, and that the Germans were exporting hopped beer from the 13th century onwards. That first evidence of hopped beer brewed in England came from around 1412, and for a time, English brewers produced both unhopped ale and hopped beer. Essentially, that was the difference between it. If you went to an English tavern in the medieval ages, right, and you ordered an ale, you were going to get something that had been flavored with gruit. But if you went and you ordered a beer, then you were going to get an imported drink that was flavored with hops or that was made with local hops, but it really depended based on laws for whatever they had at the time, and that's a whole other thing that I could cover at some point. On April 23rd, 1516, the Bavarian Reinheitsgebot was put into effect, which declared that hops were one of the three allowable beer ingredients, as, of course, yeast hadn't been discovered yet. In 1710, the English Parliament banned the use of non-hop bittering agents, at least in part to prevent brewers from evading the new penny-per-pound hop tax, which, can I just say, from among all things, do you have any idea how many times when I talk about anything with history in England, and it goes, ah, yes, and then this thing happened. Why? Attacks. Like, if you look at, like, it's literally, it's not just American history. That is English history in total. Oh, why did the English do this thing? Well, these people were trying to evade a tax. Basically, they had... The, the English knew that people liked beer. That was a thing that everyone drank. And the most common drink thing was something that used hops, right? So they thought, okay, easy way to make money. We need this for, you know, military things. We're going to every pound of hop that you have, right? It's going to cost a penny. That's going to be the tax. So people were like, yeah, no, screw that. And they just went and they would, they would, they would drink stuff that had been flavored with, you know, grew But of course, that's going to, f- piss off the government because the government wants people to buy hopped beer so that they, you know, pay the tax. So they just banned the stuff that was made. It wasn't out of a matter. They didn't do it for health. They didn't do it because, oh, we don't know if all of this stuff that has random ingredients from you know, a random person we don't know. We want to care about the health of people. It's like, no, damn it. They're not paying their tax. We're going to ban this other thing. It's the most English solution ever. And so hops became the dominant bittering agent in beer throughout the Western world. And that is kind of the short. Ish history of beer. At least the one that is that I'm going to cover. There's a lot more for it. And I again, at the very end of this podcast, I'm just saying now this is only one part with a lot less information and all the fun, wacky details that is in the book, A History of the World in Six Glasses. I highly recommend that you go and get the book. Please support the podcast. I thank you very much. You can go to chirpbooks.com slash history join the book club purchase the book and i hope that you all have a good rest of your day thank you everyone who has listened and goodbye guys
1: bye guys thank you